Hi, yes, good morning and welcome to my study. In this run-up to Easter, as we just heard, we've been following the Easter story in John's Gospel. And today brings us to the end of chapter 19 and the death of Jesus. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn that straight away. John 19, from reading from verse 28. The preceding chapters cover the Last Supper, including Jesus' long sermon and prayer, then his betrayal, his trial and crucifixion. And we ended last week with John's moving personal memory of Jesus, even in his agony on the cross, committing Mary and himself into each other's care as mother and son. The other Gospels tell us that three hours then elapsed when an unnatural darkness fell over the land and then rose again. John doesn't record what happened during that time. Matthew, Mark and Luke had documented that in their own already widely circulated gospel, so he didn't bother. John is writing years later, and he emphasises different, sometimes previously untold, parts of Jesus' history. He's writing to a young and vigorous church which is springing up all over the Mediterranean area. Specifically, it's a church of both Jewish and Gentile believers who don't always get on. And it's also a church that's been deeply troubled by a powerful movement of Judaizers, so-called, which sought to bring it, the whole church back under Jewish law. So we should understand that when he appears to speak disparagingly of the Jews, he's not being in any way anti-Semitic. No, himself a Jew, he is saying in the starkest terms that Jewishness doesn't give you superiority, doesn't necessarily get you close to Jesus. But at the same time, to counter any Gentile anupmanship, he also strongly affirms the Jewish roots of our Christian faith. So he frequently points out, and he will do it a couple of times in our reading, when Jesus fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. But he also seems concerned to refute the Gnostic heresy known as Docetism. This affirmed that Jesus was fully divine, but he wasn't physically human. You can track John's counter-argument from the very first chapter of this gospel, where he states that Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And from that point on, he tells of Jesus overturning the money changers' tables in chapter 2, Jesus being weary and asking for a drink in chapter 4, Jesus distributing food to the 5,000 in chapter 6, writing on the ground with his finger in chapter 8, healing the blind man with mud and his own saliva in chapter 9, and so on and so on, until after his resurrection, Jesus eats and breathes on the disciples and even makes them a barbecue on the beach. And when it comes to Jesus' death, John wants to be equally definitive. Jesus was fully human, and his death was just as physical and as final as any other death. This was not some disembodied spirit merely giving the illusion of suffering and dying. With all that in mind, let's now read John 19, beginning at verse 28. <clears throat> After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfil the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things, too, took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. <clears throat> in this study, you may be relieved to hear I'm actually going to stick with the ESV's paragraph breaks, which is unusual for me, but I do want to propose different headings for them. These headings, if you have them in your Bible, are very useful for finding a particular place in the text, but they often end up obscuring the meaning of what follows. In this case, if we really wanted them to convey the primary meaning of each section, we might want to rewrite them something like this. Verses 28 to 30, Jesus died. Verses 31 to 37, Jesus really was dead. Verses 38 to 42, Jesus was still dead when they buried his dead body. I confess I had a long and prayerful struggle trying to work out what to say about this passage. But it all became clear once I came to the conclusion that the main message of John is simply that Jesus really did die. Nowadays, the life and teachings of Jesus are not particularly disputed historically. It's his resurrection that is disbelieved. But in John's time, it seems the controversial issue was his physical humanity and his death. But now as then, the death of Jesus remains literally a vital truth. Because if Jesus wasn't fully human, then his suffering and death were an illusion. His resurrection was meaningless. And he was not mankind's saving representative. And for that matter, nor can he be taken as any kind of example to the rest of us. So we have to forgive John if he labours the point, because it really does matter. Without it, there's nothing remarkable. Indeed, there is no salvation in the Easter narrative. As we meditate on these verses, it's entirely appropriate to grieve. To grieve both for the death of our Saviour and for our sins that made it necessary. I'm sure that's part of the reason why John details these events. 
But even as he strikes these three great hammer blows proclaiming Jesus' death, he also reminds us that this was all part of God's cosmic plan, foretold in scripture for the salvation of the world. So first paragraph, verses 28 to 30, Jesus died. When verse 28 says everything was finished, this is not some downbeat game over man. No, far from it. In verse 30, Jesus is using, um, it, 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 when he says it's finished, he's using the language that a, an employee might use, talking to his boss and saying he's completed his task. In fact, this is almost certainly Jesus' last loud cry, which we read about in the other three Gospels. Perhaps it was because John only was close enough to hear that he alone is able to tell us what it was that Jesus shouted. Verse 38 refers to Psalm 69, which is a long lament of the unjustly persecuted. Verse 3 says, my throat is parched. And verse 21, they gave me vinegar to drink. Most of this psalm might be the very thoughts of Jesus on the cross. But unlike the psalmist, Jesus forgave his enemies, even as they crucified him. This vinegar or sour wine was the customary drink of Roman soldiers in hot climates with unreliable water. Whether or not Jesus was deliberately fulfilling scripture here is uncertain. Was he just wetting his whistle before his last loud shout of triumph? Or was he, even in his last agony, obeying some specific direction from God? Either way, the point is he was fulfilling another scripture when he did it. What he meant precisely by it is finished isn't very clear. He might mean his current sufferings, his entire life of obedience to the Father, or his general existence as a mortal human being. But John wants us to know two things about the manner of this death. One, that he regarded it as the, as the culmination and completion of everything he'd come to achieve. And two, that he didn't just die of his injuries, but deliberately gave up his spirit once he was sure that his work was done. In fact, the word commonly translated bowed, bowed his head in verse 30, really just means he inclined or tilted his head. Could be that way, that way, that way. Uh, so although artists commonly depict him with his head bowed in death, he may really have died looking upwards. Paragraph two, verses 31 to 37, Jesus really was dead. It's against the Jewish law to leave an executed person hanging overnight, but it was the Roman custom to leave the bodies to decay on the cross as a warning to others. On this occasion, after the earlier near riot, Pilate was inclined, inclined to allow them to take the bodies away. Having their legs broken was absolutely the normal end for a crucified criminal. Ever inventive and efficient, the Romans even had a huge specially designed mallet for the job. Once your legs were broken, if the shock didn't kill you, you'd asphyxiate soon after. That was the fate of the two brigands either side of Jesus. But when they came to him, they found, verse 33, that he was already dead. 
And I think we can trust a Roman soldier to know when a crucified man is dead. But just to make sure they anyway inflict on his exposed side a wound which would have been fatal in any case. We can judge the size and depth of that wound by the fact that Jesus later invites Thomas to put his hand inside it. For those who are interested, there are two main medical theories about the blood and water of verse 34. One is that Jesus' heart having stopped, the blood was already separating into the heavier red part and the lighter, clearer plasma. And the spear piercing the body cavity let out a mixture of both. And the other is that Jesus' heart and lungs had gone into shock after his earlier flogging. Uh, causing a significant build-up of water in the surrounding tissue. I've no idea if either of those is right, but John lays great weight on this detail in verse 35. It may simply be that this was an accepted proof of death in crucified bodies. But at the very least, it does prove that Jesus was made of bleeding human flesh. He wasn't some kind of holy hologram. Now, some people draw a mystical significance from the blood and, water, blood and water, but I don't see any warrant for that in the text. For my money, all John is really saying is Jesus was well and truly dead. The two Old Testament passages quoted are from Psalm 34 and Zechariah 12. Once again, this psalm is one of lament, an unjust, of, of unjust persecution. Verses 19 and 20 say, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. But Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 12 is one of salvation for Israel. Specifically in verse 10, God says, and I will pour out on the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and of supplication so that when they shall look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. This is a startling affirmation of the divinity of Jesus. But at first in my reading, I missed it entirely. They shall look on me, says God, on him whom they have pierced. Third paragraph and last, verses 38 to 42. Jesus was still dead when they buried his dead body. In this section, Jesus introduces us to a third set of witnesses that Jesus was really dead. In the first, we have the testimony of an eyewitness, presumably John himself, of Jesus breathing his last. In the second, we have real experts in mortality, the Roman soldiers, proving his death to their own complete satisfaction. Is he dead? <clears throat> he is now. Now, finally, we have Joseph and Nicodemus taking the body down from, uh, from the cross and winding it up in linen cloths like a mummy, along with an incredible 75 pounds of spice mixture. These two wealthy men had up to now kept their belief in Jesus a secret. We might ask ourselves, what is it about his death that made them finally take a stand, just now that it looked a lost cause? Much more was at stake for them than a tomb and burial spices fit for a millionaire. This would tie their reputations forever 
to a man who had fallen foul of the Jewish authorities and been executed as a criminal under Roman law. We can only speculate what had touched them so powerfully, but we can be sure that if there had been some sign of life, they would have done everything they could to revive Jesus. Instead, they wrapped his shattered body in several yards of burial cloths, along with a huge quantity of spices, laid it in a tomb, and then rolled a big stone across the entrance. I don't remember a great deal of first aid from my time in the police, but I, I do remember that that's not how you treat a severely injured patient. However, if you're a wealthy first century Jew, it's exactly what you do with a dead body. We know from the other Gospels that the chosen tomb was in fact Joseph's own. But John doesn't seem to realise this. To him, it just looked as if they'd run out of time to take the body any further. Whereas our days traditionally begin at dawn, marking the beginning of activity, the Jewish day, perhaps more wisely you might think, begins at nightfall. So you begin every day, including the Sabbath, with rest, reflection, food, and sleep. As the daylight fades, the two men are hurrying to get the body underground. So begins their Sabbath rest, and so ends a brutal and utterly tragic day. Jesus, who described himself as the way, the truth, and the life, was himself stone cold dead. In life, he had sometimes raised the dead. Now he had meekly joined them. The verses from Zechariah 12, which we read a moment ago, actually stand at the head of a passage about deep mourning, specifically mourning as for an only son. And it's followed immediately at the beginning of chapter 13 by this extraordinary statement. In that day, there shall be a fountain opened in the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. So even as we join in the father's mourning for his only son, as we shall in our Good Friday meditation, we have here this wonderful sign of hope. And I'm sure John was well aware of Zechariah 13 verse 1 in drawing our attention to Zechariah 12, 10. Yes, Jesus was dead. And it was a time for deep sorrow. But it was just the beginning of the story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we take time this morning to proclaim your death in our own hearts. We thank you for bearing all that pain. But even more, we thank you for bearing all our sins for us on the cross. Thank you that you have paid the price with your life so that we may live. Pour out on us, we pray, that new life now. And may we follow you 
to the end of our days. Amen.